Hi, I'm Billy Glosson, lead pastor of Coram Deo Church in Morganton, North Carolina, and you're listening to the Coram Deo Podcast, a place to engage with sermons, devotionals, prayer, and everything else we're doing at Coram Deo. Thanks for listening. Mark chapter 3, starting at verse 20. Okay, then he went home, and the crowd gathered around again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. And they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he cast out demons. And he called to them, and he said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, a kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, then the house is not able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder the house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemies (laughs) against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they are saying he has an unclean spirit. Yipes. Mm, I'm going to ask our lead pastor, Billy, to walk us through that pretty intense verse. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you that... um, that you have called us to be your church and that you have provided a way for us to meet. You have provided us a way to receive your word. Thank you, Father, for um, the grace and forgiveness that we only have because of what your son accomplished on the cross. May we live that out. May we be able to breathe that in and breathe out all of our anxiety, all of our fears, all of our worries, um, and just know that you are truly here with us. You are making us into your image, and we thank you for that, Father, that you haven't left us, that you are still with us today. Thank you again for Billy. Would you be with him? Would you hide him behind the shadow of the cross? Would his words and his thoughts be clear and focused, Lord, that we can receive your word through him? It's in your name I pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so we are jumping into this heavy passage today. For me, during the month of April, right, we were all in quarantine in our homes, and I made it a point specifically that I was going to read more fiction. That's just something I wanted to do. Um, I always struggle to get back into this practice, right, of reading books um, that aren't just kind of nerdy theology books, but getting into to stuff that's like restful and good for my soul. And I, I often don't give myself that luxury of just reading for fun, but suddenly I found myself with some uh, extra time, right? And so I decided um, that for one reason or another, I wanted to read a classic, right? I've read a lot of different novels out there. I've read a lot of different things, but I've never really like ventured into the classics. And so I was like, you know, I'm going to read, I'm going to read 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And then for some reason I said, nope, Dracula. I'm going to read Bram Stoker's Dracula. Totally the same thing, right? That's where I landed. And I think the reason is, is because typically I shy away from kind of scary or spooky stuff. But I thought, hey, it's a classic. So many people I know love this book and they talk about how riveting it is and how just it's terrifying, but it's also a character study and it's just really, really good. So I started to read it and man, it gripped me. And what really shook and fascinated me was the character of Renfield. 
So I don't want to spoil anything, but it came out in 1897, so you're kind of on your own here. I mean, like, come on. So here's the deal. Renfield is a madman, and he's under the care of one of the main characters, Dr. Seward. He's the, the focal point of someone who's descending into madness. This is what Renfield wanted. He wanted to consume life. And so he would eat flies, spiders, and birds. Yum, right? Just like get, you, get your appetite going. But here's what he would do that was really creepy. He would use the flies to catch the spiders, and then he would use the spiders to catch the birds. It was really troubling. It was really just tragic to watch this person kind of unfold and, and, and descend into this crazy story. Now, here's the thing. Madness plays a role in a lot of the stories that we love to read and we love to watch. But you never really see the hero as a madman, right? That's not what you really want to follow. Really, we see the, the hero as one of, of sanity, of wholeness. That's the point, really, to see balance, to see restoration, Today we come to a point where Jesus is continuing in ministry and opinions are being made about Jesus. Uh, Opinions of Jesus' madness or even worse, that Jesus has some nefarious or sinister plot in his ministry. What I want us to see as we kind of look at his interaction with both his family and the scribes today is this. Jesus calls us to spiritual sanity. Jesus calls us to spiritual sanity. See, in our chaotic world of brokenness, we could use some sanity right now, right? I think, amen, we could say that. We could use some sanity. So let's see how Jesus brings us to a place of wholeness. And we see kind of two things here. We see two opinions being made about Jesus. Opinion one, Jesus is a madman. Jesus is a madman. Look again at verses 20 through 21. Then he went home, and the crowds gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. So after Jesus has been doing this exhausting ministry, how he's been raising up disciples, he's been seeking to love and serve others, we see his family seeking to seize him, right? The actual language here is that they're trying to arrest Jesus. In other words, they're trying to get Jesus out of there, to snap him out of it. Why? Why? Well, as we see in verse 21, they think he's out of his mind. They think that Jesus is crazy, I want to give his family just a little bit of credit here because Jesus was certainly radical. Again, we miss, as we read the New Testament, we miss some of the scandal of the text because we're really familiar with it. But if anything, this this story, it just kind of snaps us out of the coloring pages and felt boards to see tangible flesh and blood. His family obviously loves him, and they they want to corral him inside to get him under control. But why are they afraid? Why do they think Jesus is crazy? Well, they think that his religious fervor, his ministry is ruining his life. It's ruining his health, even, right, in a culture where meals were scarce and and where it, it was a sacred thing to eat together, the fact that he's ignoring eating to proclaim the kingdom of God to them was kind of nuts. It was insane, right? They see the crowds pressing in on Jesus, almost trampling him, and they thought, man, this is too much. Jesus is going to get himself killed. But really, what hits home with them the most, what's so hard is that his zeal is frankly too much. 
His zeal is it's just too radical. Right? It's sure it's okay to be devout, but the extremes that Jesus is willing to go to, it's too much. Right? In John 7, verse 5, we see that even his own brothers didn't believe him. Right? We know that's going to change at the end of Jesus' life after the resurrection, that they would in fact then follow him as some of the first believers, that they would pen books of the Bible. But at this point, they see their half-brother Jesus, and they think he is caught in a self-destructive megalomania, and that somebody needs to snap him out of it. See, the way of Jesus seemed upside down to them. Jesus is with the sick. He's with the poor. He's with sinners. He's with tax collectors. What is Jesus doing? And the accusations of madness, the accusations of insanity, they don't stop with Jesus' resurrection. They continue to his followers. Right? When we look at the Apostle Paul later in the book of Acts, he's on his missionary journey. We get to Acts chapter 26, and he's being told the exact same thing that Jesus is being told here. You are outside of your mind. And the same is true. We see similar accusations follow Luther, Bunyan, Wesley, and more. Now let me say this. Given the truth of Jesus Christ and the truth of the gospel, we see that these people are extremely sane. Right? These are people who get the gospel, who know what it calls, who knows what it calls them to, and they follow after. If the gospel is true, friends, then those who believe it have aligned themselves with sanity in this truly broken and crazy world. If Jesus Christ is who he says he is, then the sanest thing in the world is to follow him. If Christ calls you and I to total commitment, then anything else, well, that's crazy. Christianity needs more of Christ's madness. The church needs those who with reckless abandon cling to Christ and his call to carry the gospel to the world and make disciples. I mean, how are you following Jesus? Right, we kind of live with this sort of almost kind of polarizing view of Jesus where Jesus is just, he's nice and quaint and as long as we just, you know, read our Bible maybe once during the week or we show up on Sunday mornings and we, we kind of, we check the boxes, that that's good. But really to follow after Christ is to follow him with reckless abandon. It's to say that I'm going to make choices of sacrifice so that I can love and serve others because I want to live in the way of Jesus. It perplexes people. It's confusing. It's Christ-like madness. What's crazy is denying Jesus and living as rulers over our own lives. That's exactly what we see here of the scribes in our passage. Right, we come to the second opinion of Christ. The first was that Jesus was a madman, and the second opinion is this, that Jesus is in league with Satan. Look back at the passage, look at verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them, to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. But it's coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. We come to the scribes 
and they're throwing their opinions out as they watch Jesus. Now here's the thing. Scribes are legally trained experts, specialists of the law. They were sent out from Jerusalem to judge Jesus' miracles. And they show up and their minds are already made up. The first thing they say is that, oh, he's possessed by Beelzebub. Beelzebub was the lord of evil spirits. This is a vicious attack. They're accusing Jesus, Jesus Christ, of being demon-possessed, of being demonized. They're claiming that a demon controls him and that he is the, the one that controls him is the one that rules over the evil spirits. The second accusation was that he's casting out, verse 22, by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. So Jesus, according to them, is a son of Satan. That is insane. Like, that's a huge, huge accusation. Some think that there's even a hint here that he used the name of Beelzebub, perhaps under his breath, to perform exorcisms. This charge reduced Jesus to nothing more than a demonized sorcerer who majored in the black arts. The scribes perhaps said this because, here's the thing, Jesus was doing bona fide miracles. He was doing bona fide exorcisms. You couldn't deny it. In fact, in the account in Matthew, he had just exercised spirits from a man, and then this interaction happens with the scribes. So while they can't deny the power of Jesus, they refuse to accept that it's from God. And so because of that, well, if it's not from God, then Jesus has to be from Satan. This makes Jesus, by their account, supremely evil, an archfiend, a horribly corrupt tool of Satan. Here's how Jesus answers. Verse 23. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? Jesus illustrates this really obvious impossibility with two hypothetical examples. The first thing he says is if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. Now we know this. We know that divisions do not bring together clear, concise unity, right? When Hannah and I get in a car and say, where do you want to go eat? And she says, I don't know, where do you want to go eat? And then we just descend into chaos where we don't make a decision. We're not unified right? That's a silly example, but it's the point of this, that there is no way that these two people can be at war against each other working together somehow. He gives the conclusion, and if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but it is coming to an end. The scribes, their their, their charges don't hold up. They're easily dismissed. It doesn't make any sense. Then in verse 27, Jesus tells them what's really happening. He says, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Now, this is a parable, and Jesus often speaks in parables. And in this parable, the strong man is Satan. His house is the kingdom that he dominates here on earth. His goods are the helpless victims whom he holds in bondage through his demons. And catch this, only one who is stronger than Satan, can free the victims. And this is what Jesus has done. Jesus has entered into Satan's domain, his house. He's binding him and loosening the hapless, captive souls. 
Jesus is appealing to logical arguments for the Pharisees. He's trying to answer their accusations, and he leaves them virtually speechless. And then he gives them a chilling warning. And maybe this is what you guys are thinking. All right, Billy, let's get to the, let's get to the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit stuff. What are you going to say about that? Well, let's talk about it. Verse 28, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Wow. The question is, what is this unforgivable sin? This unforgivable blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Well, first, let's see what it's not, right? It's not cursing the Holy Spirit. It's not taking the Lord's name in vain. Like Those things are bad. That's not what it is. It's not adultery. It's not sexual perversion. It's not murder, even multiple murders, even genocide. Very simply, here's what it is. It is the ongoing, continual rejection of the witness of the Holy Spirit to the divinity and saviorhood of Christ. Let me say that again because that was very technical. It's the ongoing, continual rejection of the witness of the Holy Spirit to the divinity and saviorhood of Christ. What it is, is it's the perversion in the heart that chooses to call light darkness and darkness light. It's the continuing rejection of the witness of the Holy Spirit, whether that witness be a quiet witness in the conscience, right? The the rational witness of the word or even miracles and wonders. The scribes here were at the very brink of committing this sin because they were saying that the Holy Spirit's witness to Christ through his exorcisms, through his miracles, they were saying all of that, that's the work of Satan. Moreover, they're they're persisting in their blasphemy, right? Verse 22 indicates that they keep repeatedly saying this. If their attitude had become permanent, then they would have crossed over the line. Have there been people who have committed this unforgivable sin? The answer is yes. There have been men and women who rejected the Spirit's testimony regarding their own condition and the person and work of Christ so consistently that their hearts become unable to believe. These are people who range from the gross sinner to those who we might think are just kind of like, oh yeah, that's a good person. Listen, it's not the ignorant blasphemer on the street who's in danger of committing this unforgivable sin. It's the person who maybe has grown up in the church, who knows the scriptures, who knows God's word, and, and, and has seen something of the miraculous power of God and changed lives, and yet rejects it all, even identifying what they've seen with the power of Satan. He calls light darkness and good evil in testimony to a massive perversion of spirit. It's the idea of this, guys, that if you were going to get surgery and you needed this surgery, right? It's something that you absolutely have to have done, but you think the doctor is a murderer? Nothing that doctor says to you is going to convince you to get that surgery. You're going to think that person's out to kill you. This is the idea of what's happening here. This warning is particularly to those who have grown up in the church, who, again, may have some kind of theological education, but have willfully rejected it. And in the heart of hearts, in their deepest of thoughts, they they contribute Christianity to evil. Those who are afraid they have committed this sin, right? A lot of people who I've talked to in ministry, right? I've legitimately had people say, I think I've committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. My answer is usually, if you're worried about it, you probably haven't. Okay, you probably haven't, 
right? We can say with absolute confidence that the fact that you're so troubled is a pretty infallible testimony that you've not committed it. You see, as vile as the blasphemy of the scribes was, Jesus did not say that they had committed this sin, but only warns them. It's the idea that those who continue to blaspheme the Holy Spirit do not care at all about what they have done, right? There is no remorse. There is no desire to repent. This is a place in which you come, you get to where there is no way back. That there is no way to get to a place of repentance. If someone cares at all, though his or her sins could be the worst, there is hope and the possibility of grace. Now let me say this, this should actually be to us a source of unbelievable joy and comfort. And here's why. It is unimaginably gracious that short of this horrid sin, actually looking in God's face and calling him the prince of demons, every single other sin can be forgiven. It's easy to imagine that God would set the bar much, much lower for the unpardonable sin, but he doesn't because his grace is vast. There is this unbelievable welcome for those of us that despite where we have gone, Jesus is there waiting, calling us back to him. Mark shows us these two unacceptable opinions. The first is that Jesus was outside of his mind, that he was a madman. And sadly, this is the opinion of many today who believe that Jesus is a good man or maybe even a religious genius or guru, but he's not the son of the living God. And they think that maybe at best, as believers, we're deceived. Maybe we're a little crazy. The second opinion is that Jesus was in league with Satan. And this is the view of those who are utterly lost. Those who are standing at the edge of the eternal abyss from which there is no return. So the question for you and I again is who is Jesus Christ to you? Who is Jesus Christ to you? Is he a lunatic? Is he a demonic liar or is he God? Historian Philip Schaff says this is, this is what he says in regards to this question. He says the hypothesis of imposture is so revolting to moral as well as common sense, that its mere statement is its condemnation. How in the name of logic, common sense, and experience could an imposter, that is a deceitful, selfish, depraved man, have invented and consistently maintained from the beginning to end the purest and noblest character known in the history of the world with the most perfect air of truth and reality. How could he have conceived and successfully carried out a plan of unparalleled beneficence, moral magnitude, and sublimity, and sacrificed his own life for it in the face of the strongest prejudice of his people and ages? Here's what he's saying. How in the world could someone love with such reckless abandon Go and touch those who nobody was willing to touch. Go and eat with those who people wouldn't even dare look at or or commune with. How could a person who gives their life to love and seek and care for the poor, the broken, the widow, the orphan, the untouchable, the sinners, the damaged, and then give their lives to die for them, how in the world can we think that person is a lunatic or demon-possessed? If you're forced to deal with Jesus seriously, you have a difficult task if he's not God. Why? Because his moral teaching is not outweighed 
by his massive megalomania if he was not God, right? If he is not God and he says, before Abraham was, I am, we have a problem because this is a person who's lying. So there's only one acceptable opinion, and that's this, Jesus is the son of the living God. C.S. Lewis has these oft-quoted words. This is what he says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really silly thing that people often say about Jesus, that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we mustn't say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on level with the man who says he's a poached egg or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But don't let us come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He hasn't left that open to us. He didn't intend to. C.S. Lewis was right. Jesus cannot just be a good moral teacher. He said so many audacious, outlandish things that he must either be a liar, a lunatic, or he is the Lord. Jesus was not just one of many pointers. He was the point. Jesus was not just a prophet, but the fulfillment of all prophecy. Jesus was not just a Lord, but the Lord of Lords. Jesus was not just a godly man, but the God-man. Our world suggests that there are numerous saviors. And they're not all religious or spiritual. The world says, here's what will give you purpose. Here's what will give you meaning. Here's what will help you feel like a better person. Here's what will help you deal with all the guilt that you have in your life. Here's what will give you satisfaction. The list of saviors is ever expanding. Technology, art, diets, sex, entertainment, education, morality, humanitarianism, sincerity, hard work, patriotism, politics. But according to God's work, they do not save. This has always been the offense of Christianity. That you and I are guilty of sin. That we are all in need of a Savior. And that the only Savior who can truly save us is Jesus Christ, the Lord. This was the message It was proclaimed over and over again in the early church. It didn't matter if the apostles were talking to Jews or Gentiles, servants or masters, ordinary people or religious people or the highest ranking official in the Roman Empire. The message was the same and it still is. Repent and believe. Look to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Submit yourself to him. Open your heart to him. Trust in him. Look to him for the hope, the healing, the new life that only Jesus can give. You see, the scandal of Christianity, the scandal of our faith is that there is only one way. But the good news is this, that despite all of our selfishness, despite all of our stubbornness, my goodness, the scribes are literally looking at Jesus and saying he's of Satan. And despite all of that, there is still a way. Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. As the eternal intelligence, right? As a framer of our universe, as the architect and vehicle of the incarnation, he is the supremely sane man. 
All sanity resides in Jesus. It's actually an exercise in saneness to trust him. It's in growing, it is in growing in our sanity as we commit our life to him. See, in light of his claims and the full revelation of scripture, any other life is crazy. This is why Paul says in Romans 12, I appeal to you, brothers, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The supremely sane life is one that is totally committed to him. Perhaps this morning you need to step into spiritual sanity. There's been a lot that could drive you crazy. Maybe you've been scrolling on your phone. Maybe you've been looking at the news. Maybe your heart is heavy. Maybe you're just broken at the state of the world. Maybe you're just so ready for things to kind of shift back to normal. You just want to eat dinner with your family. See, the supremely sane life is one that is totally committed to Jesus. You realize Jesus is not a madman. He's not an evil liar. He was and is God. God's grace is boundless. You see, Jesus has bound the strong man. He's conquered our sin by setting his face to the cross, by being crucified there for our sins, by taking on all of our baggage, all of our brokenness, nailing it to the cross of Calvary and offering to us forgiveness and restoration. You see, the strong man has been bound because Jesus has risen from the grave. His heel was bruised, but he crushed the head of the serpent. And he is calling us to follow him. So will you follow Jesus this morning? Let's pray. God, we're so grateful for your word, that you meet us, Lord, that you teach us, that you show us, God, that you are a God who loves greatly, that you are a God who extends unbelievable mercy. God, I pray that we would honor you in all we do, God, and all we say, that we would be a people of grace and mercy, that we would be a people who showcase love and compassion, that we would be a people who, in a world that seems turned upside down, where there's arguing on every single side of us, that we would be people who cling desperately to Jesus, that we would say, sweet Jesus Christ, my sanity, my clarity. God, would we trust in you? Would we rely on your goodness, your grace, and your mercy? We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Quorum Deo podcast. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or our website, quorumdeonc.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram for a bigger picture inside the life of the church. Grace and peace be with you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ.